when I first moved here in 2015, I might have been forgiven for coming to the conclusion that this might not be a community where the fullness of God's Word is preached. What I mean by that is this community, like many United Methodist communities, of course it's no longer United Methodist, but at the time it was, was brought up in a time, formed in a time where there was less emphasis on the truth or the content of God's Word and much more emphasis on good works and mission work and sending money to conference and um, having all kinds of fun social programming. But even so, whenever I moved here in 2015, I preached a harder word than most United Methodist pastors, and it seemed to me that people here actually generally appreciated that. Now, I always kept in mind the possibility that if I preached on too tough a text or with too plain uh, a tone, that my appointment here might be in jeopardy. So we've gone through disaffiliation. We are currently not affiliated with any denominational body, although that should change in another month or two. And I've just been preaching through 1 Corinthians and it's been really great. And uh, I'm not the only one who's enjoyed it. I preached on the first half of 1 Corinthians 7. That's what you're going to hear. I preached on that this last Sunday. And it tells us pretty much that we're doing everything wrong as it pertains to sex and marriage. And in America today, you pretty much anticipate that everybody's going to complain and grumble and take offense. And soon enough, I'll be looking for a new church and... I was very surprised I haven't gotten a single complaint, and I've had a number of people reach out to me and thank me for saying things as plainly and clearly as I did. I don't know any pastor that's as blessed as I am. <laughs> it's a, it's an amazing thing. I just love preaching. So anyway, I'm not saying that nobody was offended. I'm just saying that the offended ones didn't... Uh, didn't tell me about it, and you know what? That might be just as well. So um, you can't tell by listening to the podcast. Our weekly assembly size, our congregation size on Sunday morning, seems to be getting bigger, not by a huge margin. That sanctuary is made for 100. We're not seeing that. Uh, the biggest we got before COVID was 70, and a bunch of people died and, and moved away. I... Man, I wonder how big things are going to get. It seems to me, you know, who knows what God is going to do. But when you got a group of people that like each other, are doing incredible ministry together, and they're not offended by God's word, it just seems to me that the Holy Spirit is is already here, but He's He's got to be doing something. So uh, anyway, I, I hope you enjoy this this portion. Uh, I hope that God's word is as powerful you over this recording for you over this recording as it was in person here. Just let me encourage you, if if you're not attending a worship service in person, if you're not a part of a covenant community, then pray about making that change. Um, there's no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. We're not made to do this thing alone on our own time, on our own terms. So I don't know where you live. I don't know what you're doing, but odds are there's a Christian body around you that could could really be good for you. And just pray about it. Just keep pushing yourself. Open yourself to the Holy Spirit. And he, he always calls us into closer fellowship with other believers. So draw close and uh, enjoy it. All right. Uh, en- enjoy the word. 
Here we go. Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. As always, or as I've done many times before, I'm going to eagerly admit I'm not the second coming of Christ, and what I have to say is not an addendum to the Bible. Rather, there's just God's Word, the Bible, and there's just us trying to understand it. Um, I, I do my best to get out of the way of Holy Scripture so that we can hear what God is saying to us. Um, the reason that this is appropriate for the body is because Paul wrote it to be read aloud in the assembled body of believers in Corinth. He, he did this knowing that children would be present, that, that men and women, slaves and free, would be present. And he, remember, he's been correcting a number of things up until now. He's corrected their inclination towards pride and idolatry. Last week, he, he hit on them for sexual immorality. And now he's going to tell us how to be married. And the, uh, well, before I get into that, we live in a context today where people try and get Christians to stop talking about sex. They say we're obsessed with sex, and they simultaneously say that, and then they say, oh, Christians are a bunch of prudes. Nothing could be further from the truth. Paul was not a prude. He talks very directly about sexual issues and marital issues, such that most Americans get uncomfortable talking about stuff like this. They'll blush. I'm going to do my best not to blush today. I'd like to think that I've been reformed by the scriptures. But there, we live in a culture that also says that the church needs to keep its mouth shut about sexuality in front of our children. And instead, we just need to let our school systems give the, the education, which I think is a terrible mistake. I think this is exactly the right place to give children an, an, uh, an ethic about the right relationship to have with their bodies. And you know what? Not just the children. Us uh, middle-aged and the older folks, too. We all need to hear it. A lot of us have heard it before and then chosen to disregard it. We're going to reestablish the biblical principle of the right relationship with the body because it's essential. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in the Bible, right? If it's in this book, it's essential. If it's not in this book, it's not essential. So there, uh, Sarah Beth and I were hanging out with some new friends a couple weeks ago, and we were sharing funny stories. They have older kids than us, and I said, what did you do about you know, your son once he got of age? Uh, and they said, we didn't give him the talk. And he has said and done some things that are very uh, embarrassing. And uh, it was funny in that context, but I hear all the time of children in particular who haven't been equipped, who haven't been told, and they figure it out from their friends, they figure it out from school, and that is not the right place. And we're not gonna get into the nitty gritty today. I'm not talking about the birds and the beasts today, but I'm talking about a bunch of stuff that goes in that direction. And just keep in mind, we're the weird ones historically. When you look at all humanity, the vast majority of humanity has lived in single-room houses with their parents, no privacy, and they've been around nature and seen how nature works. We're in a very weird place where kids are completely detached and they have no idea what's going on. They're still probably not going to know what's going on after I get done talking today, but I'm, I'm talking to the adults right now because a lot of adult sensibilities are, oh, we don't talk about this in church. We don't talk about this in front of children. Well, I would push back and say, if we weren't supposed to talk about it in church or with children, it wouldn't be in the Bible. So I, I just think, man, the world would love it if we convince uh, ourselves that uh, the Bible is too grown up for children, that, that the Bible isn't right for children. 
I think the Bible is exactly what children need. So uh, uh, are you all ready to do something? Most churches don't preach on this. They just go right over this. Are you all ready to be grown-ups? Okay. So this is taught to the church in Corinth. Corinth was a Roman town. Roman culture at that time, there was marriage. Of course, there wasn't Christian marriage because Christianity wasn't around. There were Jew, Jews around who determined what sexual... They, they had already received God's law. God said what was right and wrong sexually. There's only two kinds of sex in the Bible. There's sex between two married people of the, the opposite sex. And then there's porneia. Porneia is a Greek word meaning sexual immorality. It's anything else sexually that is, can be done if it's not done in a marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, it's, it's, it's sin. And it's a big deal. So I'm going to remind you what came at the end of chapter 6. Verse 18, we covered this just last week, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God in your bodies. We feel like our bodies are our own. They are full of passions that we, we want to act on. Last week he quoted... Uh, food for the body and the body for food. And that's how we look at sex in our culture, and that's wrong. God says, through Paul, what we do with our body sexually matters greatly. Life is not about sex, as we're going to see. Life is about righteousness, and that changes how we behave in a sexual way. So, chapter 7 begins, Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So that's already not a helpful translation. The literal Greek is, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And touch was a euphemism for using a woman as a sexual object rather than uh, a beloved sister in Christ. So the notion, he's correcting right on the front end, there are men in Roman society who have learned that other people are sexual objects for them to use, and that is not right. He is rebuking that right on the front end. Roman men at this point in time, if they were free, they would get married, but their wives were seen only as instruments of procreation. They did not have sex for fun or enjoyment with their wives. Rather, she was a broodmare. And then they would use slaves, courtesans, prostitutes for fun. And they would use male and female as well. This is just if you're a free man, you get to do whatever you want with whomever you want. He's starting right off the bat going, new, no. new. No. It is good for men to govern themselves. This is very foreign to that culture. He is entering into a culture which has its own sexual norms, and he's saying, no, you do not do that. You control and restrain yourself. Verse 2, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. So he's saying we have these passions, we have these drives, and we can't act on all of them. And even in today's society, nobody acts on all of their sexual desires and drives. You know, as they're walking down the street and they have an urge, nobody follows up on that immediately at least. Everybody knows about restraining themselves to some degree. He's saying you don't have to all be celibate, but you do have to control yourself. These feelings that you have are only to be directed towards a person of the opposite sex in a marital bond uh, with their consent. We're going to get to this consent thing, but that's the only circumstance. Yes, you're filled with passion, and you don't have to kill all of that. You can let some of it out in the right direction. That's what he's going to say. Verse 3, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. Does that mean what it sounds like it sounds? And likewise, the wife to her husband. That, that means what it sounds like. He's saying one of the primary roles of marriage is sex. 
And the husband is obligated to make sure his wife is satisfied. And the wife is obligated to make sure her husband is satisfied. It is a holy duty in Christian marriage to have a healthy sex life. And just in case you don't know, conservative Christians who attend worship every Sunday report significantly higher satisfaction in their sex lives than the rest of the American population. You would think that a bunch of heathen hedonists pursuing pleasure would have happier sex lives. We're not seeing that. We're seeing especially the youngest generation that's grown up outside of the church are sexually miserable and frustrated and weird. It's only whenever we bring our sex life into conformity with God that we find true sexual joy. Which doesn't make sense when you, you buy the propaganda that Christians are a bunch of prudes that are uncomfortable with their bodies. No, Christians, when we're reading our Bibles and doing what they say, have a great sex life. We are satisfied and our wives are satisfied or husbands are satisfied because we understand our Christian duty is satisfying our spouse. My marriage is not about me. It's about pleasing my wife, not just sexually, but that's included. Probably got a little too personal there, I'm sorry. Verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. That would not be scandalous in the Roman context. They looked at women as property. Yeah, of course, she's the broodmare. Of course, he's going to do with her what he wants. The scandalous thing comes next. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body. What? A man doesn't decide what he does with his own body. He yields it to his wife. This would have blown people's minds in the ancient Roman context. They didn't even think about women in that way. But no, Paul says we're both equal. We're different, but we're equal. We have desires. We have one person to satisfy them. If you're a husband, it's your, desire, uh, it's your duty to make sure your wife is satisfied. If you're a wife, I've already said the same thing a hundred times. But this is something that most people don't, I mean, in our culture, it's just what? I thought I was in charge of myself. I thought it was all about me. I, I got to convey what I want. And no, marriage is, hey, are you okay? What do you want? How can I satisfy you? And most of us, if we can step back, would you rather be in a relationship with someone who's all about give me, 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 or would you rather be in a relationship with someone who's trying to please you? I think we all want to be with someone who, who wants to please us. It's miserable when people come into any setting and they're going, here's what I want. You give it to me. That's not what marriage is about. That's not what any other relationship is about. Marriage at its best is acknowledging, I have desires, you have desires. Let's do our best to satisfy one another and do life together. Marriage is not just sex, but it is sex. Verse 5, do not deprive each other of what? Sex. <laughs> Don't deprive each other. The Greek word here has a note of um, thievery. The notion is that your spouse is entitled to you. Don't withhold Freely give, because why? Because your body belongs to them. First it belongs to God, and then it belongs to your spouse. It's not yours. Isn't this crazy? Uh, this is completely different from anything the world teaches. And I want to make sure that everybody's hearing this, not because I want people to feel guilty, but because we have to understand the difference between what the world offers and what the Bible offers. If we don't see the difference here, then we're just going to do what we want, and we're going to think God's okay with it. That is not the case. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Okay, so is sex getting in the way of your relationship with God? Fine, if you both want to take a break, you can, but don't do it for too long and make sure that you spend that new freed up time in prayer so it's not to be spent 
playing poker, watching sports. It's to be spent seeking the Lord. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So he's saying you're full of passion. Make sure that you use your spouse for that. Don't withhold and then get full and make some bad decisions because you're not thinking straight. Verse 6, I say this as a concession, not as a command. He's not saying uh, all of it. He's saying just this, you can take a break if you want to and you mutually consent. He's really saying, I think that's a bad idea. He's saying, you guys, he already said it, are doing bad stuff sexually because you're not focusing in the right direction. So I'd rather you just focus in the right direction and not close the doors. Verse 7, I wish that all of you were as I am. And what all translators agree on is he's saying he's not a sexual creature at this point. He's not married. He's not behaving sexually. He is a, his body is a vessel for God directly. He doesn't need a mate. He's saying, I wish everybody could be like me. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another that. And he's going to come back to gifts. But for some people, the gift is celibacy. We live in a culture where you're weird if you don't get married, right? No, if you don't, if you're not, well, he's going to say it. Um, well, in verse 9, so I'll, I'll come back. Verse 8, he says, Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So the notion that they have, I mean, if, if you have a sex drive as well, you understand that burning, how it drives you nuts. He's saying you need your outlet, just go ahead and get married, and then be be. Be good in your marriage. I mean, that's the thing. You know, we're not bad. At, as a culture, we're not bad as, oh, I have passion. I'm going to get married. The hard part we have is sticking with it and being good after we've started it, you know. And then increasingly with younger people, it is turning into an issue where they say, well, I just like to act on my passions and not get married. And that's a problem, too. So he's correcting a lot of different lifestyles that are very common today. Verse 10. To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. This is something that Jesus also says there's no way around it. And I know we live in a culture where divorce is very common, and a lot of people don't want to hear the pastor say, Jesus says it, Paul means it, Paul said it, it means it, divorce is not good. But listen, divorce is not good. It, it, it has terrible impact do not do it unless there's no other choice. And I know a lot of times it feels like there's no other choice. And remember, my parents are divorced, okay? I mean, this is something that hits every family, but just because it hits our family doesn't mean it's okay, doesn't mean that we have to turn a blind eye. Um, when you look at cross-cultural studies, not just in America, when you look across the world, one of the worst things for children's development is their parents getting divorced. And I know we wanna believe that, oh, the kids are resilient, they're gonna do just fine. We have two generations of common divorce in the West showing the kids are not doing fine. You need to be a good spouse. Don't wait till things get so bad they're falling apart. What he's, gonna say, what he's already said here is you should be joyfully giving yourself to your spouse. Well, are you joyful about that when things aren't right in the marriage? Most people aren't. So right up front he's saying you need to have this standard of happily giving yourself to your spouse. If you're not happy, something's wrong, and you need to deal with that right now. I've known a lot of Christians that just have resentment in their marriage and they keep it going years and years and years and finally it just blows up and falls apart. It's not supposed to be like that. Christians are supposed to lovingly minister to one another, deal with their uh, resentment, 
deal with their misery. He's already said, when you join yourself sexually to a person, you become one flesh, right? And he means that. So in our marriage, if we're miserable in our marriage, then our number one duty is to do what needs to get done to fix it. What's got to happen? What conversation does she need to have? What do I need to do? How can I heal this rift that's going on? Who can I call on? But if you let things simmer and it becomes a joyless, loveless, sexless marriage with resentment, that's not God-honoring. That's not good. And it ends in divorce, which also offends the Lord. Verse 12, to the rest I say this, not I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Now, is it a good idea for a believer to marry someone who is not a believer? No. It's a terrible idea. It's going to cause all kinds of problems. But if you come to Christ while you're already married to an unbeliever, then don't leave them. Don't divorce them. Rather, he says, verse 14, for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. This is, there's nothing else like this in the Bible. It's incredible. It's saying when you become one flesh with another person, your holiness goes on to them to some degree. He doesn't say it saves them, but he does say your children are holy. So you're sanctifying your marriage, you're sanctifying your children. That's really a wonderful blessing. So if your spouse, if you come to Christ and you become a believer, but your spouse is not, stay with them. Don't divorce them. And you will sanctify them, you will sanctify your kids. Verse 15, but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound, bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So what he's saying is, you can't make somebody stay. If you follow Christ, you do not make somebody stay. You don't stand between them and the door and say, I'm not letting you leave. This is how I got really clear about the United Methodist Church not being any good anymore. There's a thousand congregations that want to get free, and they're saying, nope, we're not letting you out. The moment you are in the position of coercing someone into staying, you are not with Jesus anymore. So whenever it's talking before about how the wife's body is not her own, it belongs to her husband, and she needs to satisfy him, it's not saying that the man can impose himself on her and say, hey, you owe me. Give me what I deserve. If you're doing that, you're not with Jesus. Jesus. Jesus gladly receives, but he doesn't force, right? Did Jesus force you to get saved? Did he force you to love him? This is a free will thing, and that's how it is in marriage. You never force your spouse. I'm glad I remembered to come back to that. That's important. Verse 15, we already did 15, 16 how do you know, wife, whether or not you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether or not you will save your wife? So he's saying, stay together if you can. You might, through you, they might be saved. We like to believe that we can predict what somebody's capable of. Oh, Jeffrey, he's such an idiot husband. I'm never going to get him in shape. I might as well just leave. You don't know that. And somebody can be an idiot for 20 years and then finally wake up. St. Augustine's mother prayed for him for 40 years. If that's not the right number, don't correct me. It doesn't matter. She prayed for him for decades, and he finally came to Jesus. There was a guy in Shoshone, Idaho, who came in. His, his mother attended church, and his wife attended church. They feared the Lord. He was a drunk. He was in the jail every couple months for getting drunk and fighting people. 
He would come in, and the first time he came in, we thought the church was going to fall in. He came in a couple more times over the years. One day, God actually grabbed him. I couldn't believe it. Nobody could believe it. The man is a saint today. He's all about Jesus. I'm friends with him on Facebook. He's an amazing man, Doug. Nobody thought he ever had a chance of becoming a saint. You can't say what other people are capable of, even your spouse, even your kids. You just get to choose, are you going to be faithful or not? That's what this is about. Paul is saying, be faithful even if you're with faithless people. We're going to go a bit further. Verse 17, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. So he just said, if you've been saved in an unbelieving marriage, stay with the marriage. He's going to say, however you were saved, stay that way. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches, he says. Verse 18, was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. A lot of people go, how do you do that? They had a surgical operation. Some men did back then when they decided they didn't want to be circumcised anymore. It was painful and grotesque. He's saying, don't do it. You don't need to do that. Stay as you are. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. So wherever you are a Jew or a Greek, you don't have to join up one or the other. Stay as you are. That doesn't matter. Verse 19, circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Verse 20, each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Okay, so for us, that's not a big deal. You know, we're not, we don't have many people worrying about circumcision nowadays. The next one, were you a slave when you were called? This is a big one. We, we, we had a war to end slavery in this country 150 years ago, right? But slavery has been around since before history began in every culture. Our culture didn't invent it, and we only ended it when we finally had enough money to do without it. Slavery has been practiced around the world. It was all over ancient Rome, and it was every bit as brutal as we had here in America. They were chattel. They were used as objects, sexual and otherwise. They were killed without remorse. They were considered subhuman tools to be used. He's saying, if you were a slave back then, don't let it trouble you. What? Slaves were regularly abused and beaten. It was not an easy form of life. He's saying, don't let it trouble you. How do I not let that trouble me? We, we've created, we, in today's world, slavery is so grotesque and horrible. How could these ancient people ever have thought it was okay, right? We're the weird ones historically. Throughout the rest of the, uh, human history, Slavery has been everywhere. It's just been a part of life. And he's saying, if you were a slave when you were called, don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. He's, he's walking that line between, we're not masochistic. We're not trying to suffer in life. If you can get free, go ahead and get free. If you can do it in a moral, godly way, yes, get free. Verse 22, for the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. So whether or not you're free on earth, you're free in the Lord, he's saying. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. So this language that we've been using, you are not your own, your body belongs to God, you've been bought at a price, that's slavery language. How do you get a slave? You buy them. And when you buy them, they belong to you. We are actually not free. We're either slaves to sin or we're slaves to Jesus. There's no such thing as a free man or woman. And the question is, who are we a slave to? Who's our master? He said, God has freed us from worldly sin, but we are Christ's slave. So whatever your status is on earth, it really doesn't matter. 
what really matters is your status with Christ. Is he your master? Are you his slave? Or are you a slave of the world? You were bought at a price. This is not the first time he has said this. What is the price that bought, purchased us? Christ's atoning blood on the cross. Do not become slaves of human beings. Now there he's not saying, he's just said, if you're a slave, don't let it bother you. He's saying, don't be a slave um, to sin. Don't be a slave. Don't, don't allow someone to be your master who's not the Lord. So yes, serve your worldly master in ways that are legal and ethical. However, never forget who your real master is. It's God. Verse 24, brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. <sighs> this is a hard command. We live in a very moment, we're very focused on the moment. And if, you know, I was, I was ministering to a guy yesterday. He came to the church needing help. It's a guy that I knew from back in the day when I used to go in the jail. And um, he was talking about killing himself. And I, I, this is heavy. I'm not going to say anything that should tip in. I don't think any of you are going to, I don't think you even know who he is. But I said, I know you kind of believe, do you believe in hell? And he said, yeah, I'm in it. And I said, oh, no. I know your life's bad. It can get so much worse than this. And if you don't have that eternal vision, you're actually going to make some really terrible decisions right now. I need to warn you about what's ahead if you make that stupid decision. He made that stupid decision because of things this chapter had to deal with. He married a woman who's a meth addict. He was a meth addict. What happens when addicts get together? Almost 100% of the time, they bring out the worst, not the best in each other. There are exceptions, but man, so many people get together. Oh, I came out of addiction. They came out of addiction. We can minister to each other. All it takes is one bad day, and one falls, and then it's so easy for the other to fall. The guy got clean for nine months. Went to a treatment facility, was doing great somewhere else, and he started getting lonely. Started having those passions. He said, you know what, I can go back to my wife. I can, get, I can get her lined out. I can work this out just fine. What do you know? Strung out on meth. Thinking the Irish mob and the police are after him. Doesn't make any sense at all. Broke my heart. I prayed for this guy for years. So many times I got into the jail, people are there because they have disordered love, whether it's with a, an unmarried lover or with a spouse, and their marriage got messed up. I'm going to say it again. Our generation is miserable. We come from a miserable people. They started the sexual revolution in the 1960s with the pill, thinking that this freedom would bring happiness. It's brought misery, abject misery. And rather than talking about going back to how things were, they just keep on going forward. Well, we're miserable sexually, so let's change our boys to girls and our girls to boys. Maybe then they'll be happy. I watched this nature show. This is the last part of the sermon today. I like this metaphor. I watched this nature show with my kids on uh, Netflix, and there was a troop of elephants around the India-China region. And they were in a region where they were running out of food and water because there was a drought, so they decided they needed to, to migrate, right? But the, everywhere they migrate to, there's humans, and they're in the middle of cities, and, and the humans look out for them. They don't kill them, but also, you don't, if you're an elephant, you don't want to live in the city around humans. And nothing's working out. Finally, the elephants turn back, and they go back to where they were. The drought's over. There's plenty of, uh, it turns out, being a false alarm. Rain kept falling, and there was food, and they lived peaceably from then on. And that's what's happened with Western culture. We got confused 
and convinced that we were in a drought and that the gospel of Jesus Christ, as historically understood, was not sufficient anymore. We needed to move. We needed to let our doctrine drift. We needed to stop talking about sexual ethics. We needed to stop holding people to a high standard. We needed to be more accepting, take people where they are, don't make them feel so bad, don't talk about hell and sin and damnation and judgment. What we found is that leads to an awful place, a miserable place for everybody. Brothers and sisters, elephants, we got to go back. We got to return. We got to repent. Now, that doesn't mean that we can time travel and go back in history and stop from ever sinning. What that does mean is we can assess the situation right now and go, I'm not being what I should be in my marriage. I need to be better to my spouse. Or I'm not behaving myself sexually and I need to get myself in shape because I'm upsetting the Lord. There are lots of things that this could or should bring us to. The worst thing in the world could be that we go home and go, well, that was weird. What's on TV? Don't do that. This has been written down for your good. Let the bitter medicine heal you.